the intersection of true crime and real estate, you'll find Crime Estate. I'm Heather. And my name is Elena. As real estate agents and true crime junkies, we view crimes through a different lens. So walk through the door of some of the most notorious true crimes with us and discover how sometimes the scene of the crime has its own story to tell. Hey, Heather. Hey, Alana. We're, we're back. We're oh, back. sorry. You're going to say that. We're back. We're back. We can say it together. Okay. That's great. <laughs> yeah, we're back for episode number three of JonBenet Ramsey, and I'm really excited to bring this, you mm-hmm. know, because we're really here to talk a lot about the house and the history of the home. And I feel like the last two episodes, we've gotten into that a little bit, but it was really more scene, set up right. for, you know, how the house, what's going on now. So I'm excited to tell you about that and um, and wrap up John Bonet and, and move on to some other, we have some really interesting stories lined up. So yes. I'm excited for that. I get to talk more next time. I know. I know. Excited Do you to- want to like give a little sneak peek of your episode for next week? Sure. It's late 1960s is the setting. LA's the setting, Hollywood and the Manson family. Ooh. Yeah. Okay. So I'm excited to talk about I don't know a lot that. about that. So I'm that'll excited. be that'll be interesting. Yes. What about you, Melanie? Do you know a lot about I mean, at this point you should know a lot about John Benet Ramsey. <laughs> I've learned a lot about John Benet Ramsey recently. Um you know, I've seen a few movies about the Manson uh, family and the house. I kind of went down a rabbit hole as, you know, we both, uh, all three of us are apt to do is once we see something and we kind of start on our research. When I saw that movie, Once Upon a Time mm-hmm. in Hollywood, and and which takes place at the house next door to this house, I started doing a lot of, you know, Wikipedia uh, research. And so I know just enough to kind of know the setting, but I think it will be really interesting now that you're actually going to talk about the facts right. of, of yeah. the case. I, I have not seen that, but I know Brad Pitt's in it, so we need to watch that. Oh, yeah. 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 There's some sure. good looking people in it. <laughs> well, before we jump into this episode, what other true crime have you all been following this week? I feel like there's been a lot in the news. Melanie's been following something for a long time. <laughs> well, for the last few months, I have been binging um, Mandy Matney's the um, Murdaugh Murders podcast. And that is, if you haven't listened to it, it's great, but it kind of goes through the Alec Murdaugh, that dynasty in South Carolina and the Low Country, and all of the crazy. I mean, it, it, seem, it seems not real. Um, and it seems uh, it, almost like too crazy to be true. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, there's financial crimes, there's theoretical alleged murderers, there is. Um, a boat crash. There is lots of embezzlement or stealing of money. Um, it, so it's crazy. It's an onion that is just being unraveled. But the big thing is that next week is when Alec Murdaugh uh, goes to ma- um, goes to trial for allegedly murdering his wife and son, um, uh, potentially as kind of a cover up to kind of uh, get get everyone off the scent of all of his financial crimes that he had done. And so that goes to trial next week. And I'm very intrigued by it. And there's all sorts of news that have come out in the last few days and crime kind of um, evidence out there. So yeah, I've yeah, been I mean, uh, looking at that. A huge shout out to Mandy Matney. Number one, you know, we've, 
we're just a few episodes in here and we're sort of figuring out our voice and, and how to use all this equipment. And people were so mean to her when she started Aww. her podcast and told her she had an awful voice, a raspy voice, a scratchy voice. Vocal fry. I had never even heard the term vocal fry. And then I went down a rabbit hole um, trying to figure out what vocal <laughs> fry is. And um, yeah, we might all three have it. I probably definitely have it. But uh, yeah, they people were really mean to Aww. her. Really mean to her. And, and yet she's like basically responsible for uncovering so much truth and shining the sunshine, as she says, um, on this crazy story. Yeah. I mean, she is like a true investigative journalist turned oh, yeah. podcaster. I mean, so but it was cool. it was the journalism side that made her start digging into that story. Oh, absolutely. And so what people, you know, other journalists will say about her, they'll call her a quote unquote, a blogger. And that is like, like so demeaning to someone who this is her livelihood. This is her passion, her education is in it. And so they like to go, oh, She's just a blogger. And, That's so mean. Yeah. Yeah. So condescending. Yeah. So we, we have mad respect for Mandy Matt. Oh, yeah. We are not journalists. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Let's be very clear. <laughs> In case you hadn't already figured that out. That's right. That's right. Yeah. No, we're just a true crime enthusiast and real estate lovers. You know, that's yeah. all right. Yeah. We're, uh, you're laughing at that term. You think that's funny? I, no, I, and real estate lovers. Yes. I mean, we are. Well, <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah. That, yeah. Okay. So true. We're just true crime enthusiasts. And I can't say real estate agents because we don't have you licensed I, yet, Melanie. I mean, come on, join the crew. I feel like peer pressure. Uh, <laughs> my husband keeps saying, when are you going to get your real estate license? Oh, there you go. And I'm like, um, yeah. Okay. And I, 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 I'm mad, mad respect for you guys. I, I mean, if I could just walk around cool houses all the time, I would really They're like that. They're not all cool. Yeah, that, that's mm-mm, that's mm-mm. exactly the truth. Like any job, there is the truth about it. It's not all glamorous. And then the sitting for the inspections and waiting on um, the workers. Yeah, yeah, I was telling Atlanta before you got here, I showed houses in the dark last night and one of them didn't have power. So we're, you know, walking through the house with our iPhone flashlights on. You know, it's it's not as glamorous as it's no. cracked up to And me. can I tell you all, because of my love of true crime, I don't ever walk into a house by myself. I will wait outside for my clients because I don't know what lies behind the door. Like it freaks me out thinking about it. Well, I always ring the doorbell and say hello because I walked in on a robbery once. Oh, are you serious? Yeah. I was in Dallas. Well, no, I was in a suburb and I was opening the front door and there were people like scuttling around in the kitchen and they left through the back door. And so we were like, well, this is probably not the house for you. You know, maybe, Not but the then we were, I was like, well, I guess I need to call the police and call the listing agent. Oh no. <laughs> it was, it was very scary. So I will walk in, but I always knock and like, hello, anybody home? <laughs> also helps you not walk in on people in the shower right. and all sorts of other things. Right. Right. Wow. I mean, if you just saw my jaw, it was completely dropped. Yeah. Fascinating. We could probably write a book on things we've seen. <laughs> Crazy stuff. Yeah. I've not, I've not had that occur though. That sounds super it, crazy. It was scary. Yeah. It really oh, was yeah, scary. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Can you imagine getting back to John Bonet, like walking into that house? I keep I keep being a little catty in my mind because all the crime scene photos, that house is a disaster. And I'm trying to give them a little bit of grace because it was Christmas. And, you know, my house probably looks like a disaster on Christmas too. But they had, you know, they had like a staff of housekeepers and they had all this money. And it was like there was stuff everywhere Interesting. all the time. So, yeah, we've got some of those picks up on the website. So you all will have to take a look. Yeah. 
So you're going to talk about suspects today, is that right? Yeah. So, you know, we sort of broke down in the last episode that the family was the first real focus Mm -hmm. in this investigation. And we went through the case, you know, for and against each of them. And if you don't believe the family did it, then you have to believe an intruder did it. And so there are thousands of intruder theories. Like it would take us years and years to go through all of them. So I'm really just going to focus on the ones that sort of tie into the home the most. And then at the end, I'm going to blow your mind with the craziest intruder theory out there. But, um, you know, I think when we're looking at these intruder theories, the thing that everybody focuses on is this broken window that was in the basement. And, you know, I want you to picture a basement window. You're you're below ground for the most part, but then you've got a little bit of like a, almost like a transom window. It's, it's not a large window. It's more long and narrow rectangular, really just for a little bit of light to come in. Mm-hmm. Um, and you would have, it would have been right at the bottom of the house. So, you know, you could kick it with your foot or you could, you know, perhaps open it. But when we say basement window, we're not talking about a full window here. Mm -hmm. This is a very small window. And that window was broken. And John Ramsey said that he broke it one day because he left his keys for the house somewhere else and couldn't get in. And they just never fixed it, which is also Mm -hmm. odd to me. I mean, they obviously had money to fix Mm -hmm. it. They had repairmen to fix it. I don't know why. And he was like, well, I just always left my, lost my keys. So um, it's, it's an interesting just, right. You know, well, I'm trying to think like if I left my keys at home and again, this is not 1996. So, I mean, I would have called my husband on my cell phone and said like, Hey, can I come get a key from you? But I wouldn't have broken a window. Would you? Well, not to interrupt, but wouldn't, I mean, I'm trying to picture how broken was this? I mean, I would be more thinking about like the cold air coming in. To, I mean, you know, in Dallas, we're not as cold as Colorado, but you would think that that would be inefficient to have a broken window. Agreed. <laughs> and Agreed. why a basement window? If it's that small, why not a back window? Yeah, I don't know. That's, I mean, questions for John Ramsey if we ever get to sit down with him. Have, have either of you ever lived in a house with a basement? I have not. I have no, I mean, you know, we don't have a lot of basements in Texas. Now, growing up in Kentucky, our house did not have one, but my grandparents' house did. And it was always a little spooky. Yeah. I um I lived in DC for a, a few years and in Northern Virginia. And some of the houses that we lived in had basements. And they can range from being finished basement where it's the family room or an extra mm-hmm. bedroom to being more of a storage space. But it, yeah, I mean, I, I've definitely lived in houses where you have these like transcom windows and they're kind of up high and you sort of have mm-hmm. to climb mm-hmm. down. Um, yeah. But I'm, I, it there's makes just, me think. Yeah. Strange. There's just nothing I know about John Ramsey, you know, cause he's this like very, you know, sort of elegant, businessman mm-hmm. that is going to break his, mm-hmm. you know, basement window. But that's what he said he did. And there was a broken window. Now, how else could an intruder gotten into this home? You know, it's also very possible that they just left a door unlocked. Like they were gone. Somebody could have just walked in the front door, the back door. Um, there weren't signs of forced entry. So, you know, they don't think somebody broke mm-hmm. in through one of the doors, but it's possible a door was unlocked. And then, After the crime occurred, John and Patsy, you know, initially said that only them and like one or two other people had a key to the house. But when they 
actually started listing the number of people that had keys. They had over 30 people that had a key to this house. So, you know, even if they had locked a door, if we assume that whoever committed this crime was familiar with the house, um, it's somebody, you know, it could have been somebody that had a key. Mm -hmm. And 30 people he could have asked. He could have asked for a key so he wouldn't have to break his own basement window. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate that you circled back to that. (laughs) Yeah. um, So... And I think about that now, you know, it's just time has changed or things have changed so much in, what is that, 30 something years, 40 years. Um, you know, we have all these electronic keypads and you can see who came in and came out. I mean, even with like our key boxes for showing houses, you know, you can run a report that mm-hmm. says somebody opened it at, you know, 753. Um, we just have so much information at our mm-hmm. fingertips that mm-hmm. they just didn't have back then. So I'm going to focus on what I think is probably the most probable intruder theory or maybe the most widely speculated intruder theory. And, you know, since we're doing this right after the holidays, it only seems fitting that we talk about Santa being the intruder. Mm. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So two days before John Bonet died, Bill McReynolds played Santa Claus at a party at the Ramsey's house. And he had actually played Santa at their house a couple of times, both in 94 and in 95. He was a professor of journalism at the University of Colorado, and him and his wife would dress up like Mr. and Mrs. Claus for holiday parties, you know, sort of when he got to retirement and was looking for something else to Mm -hmm. do, that was something they did together. So if we assume that the intruder was familiar with the Ramsey's house, you know, this puts him in a position where he would have had knowledge of the home. Um, The the Ramsey's went on record as saying that John Bonet had given him a tour of the home, which is also a little odd. Like, if I have somebody at my house, mm-hmm. I'm trying to think I threw a murder mystery party for my son, and the guy came, but I didn't give him, like, a whole tour of the house. Right. He was just there to be in the living room for the murder mystery party. Right. Oh, she was very proud of her house because it was on that home tour you mentioned, too. So maybe... Yeah. I mean, I don't maybe. know. Or, and maybe because they were so used to having their home on home tours, they just automatically gave people tours when they showed up. You didn't give me a tour of this house when I first came here. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, tour is forthcoming. (laughs) There's a lot to see, let me tell you. So, you know, okay, so we're thinking Santa Bill, did, did he do this? Did he not do this? Surely Santa Claus was not involved in this crime. But there's some real weird stuff that comes out about Santa Bill and his connections to the Ramses. So John Bonet gave Santa Bill back in 95 a vial of gold glitter as a gift. So she, you know, she was just being a sweet little five-year-old girl. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much, Santa. Here's something for you. But he really, that may, meant a lot to him. And so when he had heart surgery the following year, he took that gold vial of glitter with him as like a talisman to take to the hospital. Creeps me out a little bit. It creeps me out a little okay, bit Okay, good. Yeah. Um, and then Santa Bill gave John Bonet a card at that Christmas party in 1996 that said, you will receive a special gift after Christmas. And I don't know if we brought this up in the first episode, but when they went to the White's house Christmas Day for a party, John Bonet kept telling them that Santa was going to visit her after Christmas. And you know, they thought she's sick. She's confused. Santa's already come. Um, But apparently she was very adamant that Santa was coming. And so, you know, the thought is, who would John Bonet get out of bed and 
go quietly mm-hmm. with perhaps Santa, especially if he's already told her he's coming after Christmas. Right. Oh, my gosh. Santa Bill gets a little creepier from here. He goes on TV and tells an interviewer that all children are special to Santa. She just happened to be extra special to me. She was very thoughtful and caring little girl and gave me a present. You can imagine how rare that is. And he, in a different interview, he told the interviewers that he felt very close to her and he didn't really have that kind of relationship with his other children or grandchildren. And that when he dies, he wants to be cremated and he's asked his wife to mix that gold stardust that John Bonet gave him in with his ashes. That is so super creepy. It is so creepy. That man would never be allowed near no, my children oh again. Oh my gosh. I mean, and kids give gifts all the time. You know, like they've made you a little rubber band bracelet or they picked a flower walking up to your house and you keep it to be sweet for a little bit. And then you sort of quietly like discard it. Right? Uh, yes. Okay. Yeah. 100%. So I'm not crazy no, here. This is no, creepy. that's super okay. creepy. Let me give you another creep. Oh, no. Factor here. So Bill and Janet's daughter was abducted 22 years to the day before John Bonet was murdered. She was actually abducted along with a friend of hers, and she was nine years old at the time. And she was forced to watch while the abductor molested her friend. Now, both of these girls were recovered. They were not murdered. And no one was ever charged with that crime. Yikes. 22 years to the day. And if that wasn't enough to make the hair on the back of your neck stand up, Janet McReynolds, Bill's wife, uh, mother of abducted daughter, wrote a play in 1976. So 20 years before this crime and two years after her daughter was abducted, which was a fictionalized version of a true crime that occurred in the mid-60s where a child was abducted, molested, and found dead in a basement. That's wild. So it's Again, it's like, there's no, like, there's no blood evidence. There's no DNA. It's just like, all of these things make Santa Bill look really bad. Yes. So eventually the police sort of ruled Santa Bill out as a suspect. He he gave them DNA samples. They didn't match. And because he had just had this heart surgery, people think that he was probably too weak to have committed a crime like this. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to say that he's still sort of top of my suspect list. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now, while we're discussing some of the oddities that occurred, you know, several number of years before this crime occurred, I want to circle back to the Christmas home tour that the Ramseys were on in 1994. A snippet from the Denver Post um, in November, sort of advertising that home tour, said that seven homes in the University Hill neighborhood will be featured. Once a cow pasture on an isolated hill above Boulder, development began here in the 1890s with lots selling for $9.22 each. Today, the neighborhood features a variety of architectural styles and mature trees. A 1927 Tudor house at 755 15th Street is being restored to its original elegance by Patsy and John Ramsey, who are also opening it to light and air. A spacious master suite with dormers has gone into the unused attic, and a sun porch became a dining room. Now, there are pictures of Patsy Ramsey standing at the front door with John Benet and Burke with her. They're all wearing matching sweaters. And they were said to have stood there and greeted over 2,000 mm. visitors wow. that came through that house. Um, in John Benet's room, it featured her trophies and sashes and medals from her previous beauty pageants. And Patsy's room had her mis- 
West Virginia dress, and Miss America competition sash laid out across the bed. Uh, side note here, I just started re-watching Designing Women. <laughs> I mean, have y'all seen that at all in your life and or recently? I know what it is, but I've not watched it. I don't remember watching I watched it. it. I watched it a lot when it first came out. Okay. Um, or my, or my parents did, and I was in the room. I definitely have seen, um, and I liked it. I, I mean, I, yeah. I don't know if it holds up. You know what? I was afraid it wouldn't, and it actually holds up better than you think okay. it would. They were sort of progressive for their time. Okay. okay. All things considered. But every time I see Delta Burke, I see Patsy Ramsey in that. my head now. Oh, yeah. you know, we, I was already researching the story when I started. And I was like, oh, beauty queen. You know, we're in Atlanta. And so from now on, there the two images will ever be intermingled in my mind, I think. I could see that. That's fair. Def- yeah. That's fair. Yeah. That, that, you're right. Now I can. And I did want to pause you about like the home tour because, you know, I've been involved in a lot of home. I've gone to a lot of home tours. I live in a historic home. And so I ran the home tour in my neighborhood one year. Uh, but I guess maybe it's just the ones I'm used to the owner doesn't stand at the front door Mm. because you don't want to be there when people are whispering, oh, well, I would have done this differently, right? Like, that's awkward. Like, sometimes I've seen them, like, be around and answer some questions about the history or how they did some of the renovation, but that's, I don't know, kind of weird to me to, like, be welcoming and how boring for the kids. Oh, can you imagine a six- and nine-year-old having to stand there? (laughs) No. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've sponsored a lot of home tours over the years and I've obviously been in a lot of homes during home tours and very rarely are the homeowners there or if they are, they're like out back, maybe, you know, serving a cocktail or thanking Mm -hmm. people for coming. But yeah, you don't want to be there like this is my house. Yeah, we do. Um, we have a fun tradition in my neighborhood where we do wine walk um, for the home tour. And so each house uh, 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 on the and the nighttime, we there's wine and we get like the local restaurants to cater and like have like little appetizers. That's and fun. so it's a lot of fun. So, I mean, it's, oh, it's very casual. I mean, and you're right. We'll see some of the homeowners there, but it's not like they're greeting people. It's like, uh, we've got some bartenders and we're drinking some wine and, oh, you can ask mm-hmm. some questions and you have a little food. I mean, we're real, <laughs> real casual. Right. But it, uh, I can't imagine something that kind of formal and odd. Mm-hmm. Now, did I read, maybe we're going to get to this since I'm talking, uh, that the volunteers used the basement wine room as their uh, kind of like their office. You're right. So Patsy said that the volunteers set up shop in the basement and sort of use it like office command station, right? You know, and and if you've ever worked on a home tour, you know, you've got people that are coming from 10 to 12 and then 1130 to 130. And so sort of their shift change location. So those people would have had access, you know, to the basement portion of the home. Strange. Yeah, it, it really is. Interestingly enough, there in 1996, July 1996, the Ramsey's home in, is it Charlevoix? Charlevoix, Michigan? Charlevoix? Sounds like yeah. right. Oh, wait, I mean, it is very French. Um, I don't know how. We should I, listen I to a Google, either. Wikipedia, how do you translate right. it? Right. Oh, my gosh. I have to tell you all this story real quick. So I was 21 when I had my first job in real estate here in Dallas. And I was just like an office administrator, you know, helping with paperwork. And one of the very distinguished realtors in our office 
had this beautiful new listing on Versailles. Mm. And he came in and I said, oh, what a great house on Versailles. Because I grew up in Kentucky and Versailles is a place in Kentucky. Oh. It's a whole city. And oh, he no, was, was God bless him. No, he oh, was okay. not mean. He was like, honey, <laughs> it's Versailles. And I was like, okay. <laughs> I was like, well, I just want you to know there is a Versailles, Kentucky. And he was like, and there's a Versailles, France. <laughs> Like noted. It's like Houston and Housden and exactly. New York. Yeah. Exactly. So, okay. So I may be butchering the name of this beautiful town in Michigan, but their home was a part of the tour homes in that area as well in the same year. And in the fall of that year, there are reports that there was an unusual suitcase and a pair of cowboy boots found in JonBenet's bedroom in that house and that her bed was messed up as if somebody had slept there. What in the world? Isn't that crazy? Yes. But they never were able to, you know, decide if any sort of crime had occurred other than a break-in. It was just sort of an odd coincidence. Now, this town in Michigan is one of the most exclusive resort towns and, um, you know, John and Patsy bought their home there in December of 1992. It was a 1,731-square-foot um, home that they bought for $336,000, and then they made substantial improvements to it. And this property was perched on a bluff overlooking Round Lake and was just minutes from Lake Michigan. Sounds like a, a gorgeous mm -hmm. place. Apparently, John um, discovered this when he was attending Michigan State University and sort of fell in love with the area. And that's how they knew to vacation there and buy a home there. I think it, I think it is kind of a noted um, vacation town, tourist town um, on the, uh, by the lake. Uh, it's just in a whole different part of the country mm -hmm. than we live in, but I think it's supposed to be a really nice summer place. Yeah. And if you remember back to our first episode, when John called the pilot, you know, they had plans to mm -hmm. fly there that day and meet his kids from Atlanta. So it's definitely a place they visited a lot. And John Bonet was um, into the pageant scene there too. Um, she won one of her beauty crowns in Michigan, taking M Little Miss Charlevoix, Charlevoix, Little Miss Something honors in the summer of 1995. So if I do the math, I think that was the last uh, beauty pageant she had won before, before her death. No, so this would have been the summer of oh, 95, okay. Okay. probably the last one in Michigan. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And actually, the police in Denver flew to Michigan to see if they could find unrehearsed examples of Patsy's handwriting smart. to compare. Very smart, right? To, to think about just finding a note she had written down up there, but um, nothing ever really came of that. Okay, so I want to go back to the broken window for a minute and how that plays into one of the more prominent intruder theories because I think most people assume that if Santa was the intruder, he was probably in the home when the Ramses got home. Like either he was hiding um, or, you know, he slipped in through an unlocked door. But I don't think a lot of people think that like Santa climbed through that little narrow transom oh, right. window. That, and it's super creepy to think about. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I guess he does come down a chimney, so why not a window? But all right, so Lou Smith is a retired Colorado detective who actually came out of retirement to help with the Ramsey case. It was about three months into the case when the Boulder police just sort of felt overwhelmed. And so they went back and they were like, you know, who in retirement could we get mm -hmm. to come and help us with this? And so he is a seasoned homicide detective. 
And he revisits the crime scene and he sort of disproves the theory that the police had going up until that point that there was no evidence of forced entry into the house. He thinks the intruder came in through that basement window and he actually does a videotape of himself getting Mm. through the window. Now, it's a little funny because Smith himself is sort of an interesting guy and he's a smallish man. And I think that, you know, we have to sort of caveat the fact that he got through the window this way. He actually had tried like various businesses and failed early on in life. And he prayed for a solution and he saw an answer from God as a call he received from a cousin who was on the Colorado Springs Police Department, suggesting that he apply to be on the police department. But he fell short of the department's minimum height of five feet and nine inches just by a little bit. And so this is back in 1966, and he has his cousin hit him over the head so that he has a bump on his head. What in the world? I know, right? Oh my <laughs> So gosh. when he goes in to apply, he was remeasured and including the bump on his head, what? he was tall enough to get on the police force, which I guess was a good decision on their part because he was a very well-respected homicide detective wild, over the years, though. but almost didn't make it. So we're going to remember that he's a little bit shorter in stature mm-hmm. than most men um, when we're thinking about him coming through this window. He actually also finds a footprint that didn't come from any of the Ramsey's shoes. And he's the one that makes the suggestion that the marks on JonBenet's body were from a stun gun. Now, his theory is that, you know, somebody snuck in through this basement window while the Ramseys were at the party and they waited until they arrived home and everybody was asleep. And they were actually going to use a suitcase that was found near that window to sneak JonBenet's body out of the mm. house. But then they figured out they couldn't get it out of the window. Um, and he also thinks that the killers wrote the ransom note while waiting for the family to return, which would make a lot of sense because we know the note came from the kitchen and... It took like 21 minutes to ride out. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I had read was that the house, you know, like many houses of that era, was heavily carpeted. So it is plausible that someone um, took her body and carried her downstairs without the other family members hearing it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And when you go back to the window theory, you know, the police in Boulder at the time there, when they took the crime scene videos, there was a spider web up in the corner of the window. And so one of the reasons they thought that nobody could have climbed through that window, not necessarily because they couldn't fit, but because they thought they would have disturbed that mm-hmm. spider web. Mm-hmm. And when Lou Smith does the climb through, he's able to do it without disturbing the spider web. So Smith really likes a guy by the name of Gary Oliva for the crime. Now, Gary Oliva is sometimes referred to as Thomas Aquinas, the saint, or the church mouse. Hmm. And I think that comes from the fact that he was collecting his mail at the St. Thomas Aquinas Church on 14th Street. Now, that is right around the corner from the Ramsey's house. I Google mapped it, and it is a one-minute walk. Okay. And he was living at a homeless shelter near the Ramsey's home. He showed up at the one-year memorial service vigil for John Bonet and Boulder when he showed up, he was holding a folder sealed tightly with a strip of smooth black duct tape, which is the same color as the duct tape they found on John Bonet's mouth when John found her in the basement. Hmm. Now, on December 26, 1996, which would be the day after the crime occurred, he is said to have called a high school friend, Michael, and told him 
that he had hurt a child and he was just sobbing on this phone call. Oh, wow. Right? And so Michael calls the Boulder police tip line, but it's really unclear whatever comes of that tip. But it's not until a while later in December of 2000, Gary Oliva is arrested at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And in his backpack, when they're searching him, they find a stun gun and a poem entitled Ode to John Bonet in his backpack. And it was at this point that they start putting everything together and they realize that he was at the vigil. Now, much like with everybody else involved with this crime, there's just a lot of circumstantial stuff that makes it seem like he's guilty. You know, at the time of the murder, he had a criminal history, including the sexual assault of a seven-year-old girl Mm. in Oregon. And another piece of his criminal history states that he once tried to strangle his own mother with a telephone cord. So you have the sexual assault of a small child plus strangulation. But alas, as with everybody else we've talked about, Gary Oliva's DNA does not match the evidence they have on file. So the police sort of write him off Mm -hmm. as a suspect in this crime. I think it also makes me wonder if the DNA they have is good DNA. I mean, it sounds like they have matched it to so many people. And you have to wonder, like, was it contaminated or is it... You know, I'm not saying any of these other people we've talked about have done it, but they, everybody seems so guilty. Like you would think one of them has to have done it, right? Right. You would think so. I mean, you're right. It seems like of all of these suspects that you've talked about, I could see any of them having done this. Yeah. If I were just to tell you the story of how this crime occurred and we listed one of the suspects and told you all the circumstantial stuff around it that made them seem guilty. They all seem really guilty. Right. Yeah. And I wonder about, like you said, about the DNA and the quality and any uh, contamination of it. And then also we we don't know what DNA it is. And I'm assuming, I mean, I don't know a lot about that kind of stuff, but advances have been made in science. And when was the last time they cross-checked? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. And I think there's always a concern about using up too much of what you have. Now, it is interesting. Lou Smith has since passed away, Mm -hmm. but his family continues to work through his files on his behalf. So that would be really cool if, you know, sort of his legacy Mm -hmm. led to the capture of John Bonet's killer. For sure. But Elena and Melanie, you know, one of the things we're really most interested in is what happens to the house after the crime occurs. Mm -hmm. And I want to go back to the house and sort of talk about you know, what happens after they walk out of the house mm-hmm. on December 26, And never came back. They never came back. That's right. So in 1996, now I want you to remember that the Ramseys left the house the afternoon of December 26, 1996, and they never entered that house again. In February of 98, a group of investors buys the house for $650,000, which if you remember is less than they paid for it, definitely less than what they had into it. And they made a promise to resell the house and donate the profits to the John Bonet Ramsey Children's Foundation. So that's 98. In 2001, the address has changed from 755 15th Street to 749 15th Street to sort of, you know, I think the idea was to take away some of the mm-hmm. stigma you know, around that mm-hmm, house mm-hmm. and that address. And in May of 2004, the home is finally purchased by somebody that plans to live in it. So we've gone, what, eight years that the home has been unoccupied. And I say that it, during that time, they actually leased it out to some people, but but nobody bought it intending to live in it okay. for themselves. So the home was purchased by Tim and Carol Milner for just over a million dollars. Now, 
Carol Milner is sort of interesting in and of herself. She is the daughter of the Crystal Cathedral founder, Robert Schuler. He's that hour of power guy from TV. I Do you remember, remember that? that? Back in like the 90s when, um, you know, televangelists were like a really mm, big thing right. on TV. He was one of those first televangelists. And he's actually sort of credited historically with starting the megachurch movement. Oh, okay. So um, his daughter is the one that buys this house. They have five children. And Carol said that the house really felt like home. She said her spiritual side was overtaken by a sense of peace and calm as she walked inside the house. And once she started peeling off the wallpaper and pulled down the 1980s style drapes, Milner said she saw beautiful 1920s leaded windows and a charming home where her family could build memories. So they did some extensive remodeling to this home. In particular, they did a lot of work in the basement. And you all have to go to our website and social media, crimeestate.com, and see the pictures of this basement after they remodeled it. Because we, you know, we were saying... The basement before was dark and dank. It had mm -hmm. concrete floors. It was a series of like small rooms. It was sort of a labyrinth style floor plan. They opened it all up and transformed it into a family room with a big open space. And she said they just really wanted to create a space where all her their kids could hang out and, and go down there and play. So they did a great job. Um, now, right after they moved into the house in 2004, a couple years later, Carol had a big project that was greenlighted in California. So she spent a lot of time sort of coming back and forth from Colorado to California. And at one point, she decided that, you know, she was just in California too much to, to keep the home in Boulder. So in July of 2008, she listed the home for $2.68 million, and it did not sell. In May of 2009, she reduced the price a little bit, and dropped it to $2.29 million. Now, Let's go back and think about the real estate market in 08. That was not a great time right. for the market. So bad time for her to be selling for sure. And then in February of 2011, she listed it for $2.3 million. And when it did not sell that time, she has not relisted wow. it. It is currently vacant, but still owned by the Milners. Interesting. I wonder what the plan is. I don't know. Uh, that's great. It's kind of sad. It, it is sad. I mean, it, it's such a... It's such a beautiful home. It feels like it needs a family's mm -hmm. energy, but it, it would be a hard home for me to live in, I think. A hundred percent. You know, Very just difficult. knowing that that had occurred. Mm -hmm. And I'm assuming people still come by. I'm sure that's still a place that people come by and take pictures of. And yeah, yeah that's tough. Yeah, I would think if you owned it, you would want to do something to give yourself privacy from the front. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I'm a big fan of conifers and tall, big trees for privacy. So, right. Yeah. I don't know. I haven't been to Boulder. So, um, and I, I don't want to be a voyeur, but if I make it there, I might do just a, just a quick drive, a by. quick drive. By right. So I can, so I can lay eyes on it. So ladies, it's worth noting that as recently as December, 2022, so pretty recently from now, uh, John Bonet's father has actually been calling on police to release never before seen DNA evidence to allow for broader testing from outside entities and using kind of all of the advanced DNA mm -hmm. technology and testing. So that's kind of interesting that he is really pushing this narrative that wanting to have more DNA testing going on in this area, which is interesting. And, and we hear so um, 
frequently nowadays about unsolved mysteries being solved through DNA testing, that I think that is definitely something that I, I'm surprised that hasn't necessarily been done or not that we know everything that's going right, on right, right now. Um, but it is something that I could see being what maybe the final linchpin, you know, assuming that they have enough quantity of DNA, assuming it's a good quality of DNA, that at some point in time, they may be able to feel, see somebody familial at least that, you know, some uncle, brother, you know, and start to be able to narrow it down. I mean, I think at this time, that's probably the only way this case will ever be solved is if through some sort of DNA, um, maybe a deathbed kind of confession. Mm -hmm. um, but I think uh, family DNA is probably going to be the uh, most likely um, resolution to this. Yeah, right. I think we're going to see over the next 10, 15, 20 years, who knows, familial DNA is going to be a really interesting component to solving yeah. a lot of murder investigation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Definitely. All right, gals. Well, I have a question for you. John Benet Ramsey's house. Would you live there? Would you buy it? Would you rent it, Alana? Would you list it? I don't think I would list it unless I could see myself listing a home that had this horrible thing happen if it were bulldozed and a brand new house. But I don't think I could do it the way it is. Okay. What do you think? I mean, I'll list anything for the right price. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, that would be, that would be hard. You know, it, it definitely would depend on the circumstances. Uphill battle. Would you live there? I mean, it's a gorgeous house in a really nice neighborhood. I mean, you guys know I like kind of these like historic neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. I like neighborhoods that have a lot of trees. I like neighborhoods that have a lot of character. And definitely the neighborhood has a lot of character. Um, it is right by uh, University of Colorado. So it is. It's got like a lot of um, vibrance to the neighborhood. That said, I would probably be more apt to live there um, now that's been renovated um, to mm -hmm. the, not the 1990s right. look, which I'm sure was cutting edge for the time. Don't get me <laughs> wrong. Um, but yeah, I think I would live there. I don't know if I, I, I might not be the right person because I think that I'm not super scared to live in a house that a death has, would have occurred in. But I, I am curious from both of your perspective, from kind of the listing perspective, is how, how just how much work it would be. Now, obviously, it's a high value house, so your commission would be really nice. But it seems like it would be a lot of work that you would have a lot of people that are just interested mm -hmm. in looking in the house for interest sake versus actually really wanting to buy it and different people wanting to interview you. Um, I just feel like that might be a lot of work. Yeah, it's tough because you're right that, you know, commission would be really great. Um, but I think you'd have to put a lot of parameters on it, like who's coming to see it. Maybe make sure the buyers are pre-qualified before they are able to set foot in the door. Because I, I see what you're saying. There would be a lot of looky-loos. Yeah, I actually think it would be one of like more of like a hip pocket listing, you know, where everybody, every agent in Boulder knew it was for sale, but you weren't advertising it to the masses. That would probably be the mm -hmm. way to go. Right. That yeah. actually makes a lot of sense because 
I don't know how much open houses, I don't see, feel like I see as many open houses signs nowadays. I mean, but I know that, you know, on Swiss Avenue, you know, whenever there is a house mm-hmm. with an open house, my husband's like, let's go look. Yeah, yeah, we're, look we're, we're not in the market right now to buy a new home, but if there's an open house for a cool looking house and we happen to be driving by it on a Sunday afternoon, he's the first person right. who wants to go look at it. So, yeah, I don't think that this house would be one of those. Right. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I actually hate holding open houses. It's like one of my least favorite parts of this job. So I would be thrilled that you came in and I could just chat with you. you I love open houses. You know, I, it's, some people love them and some people hate them. I just, it, it, it's fun when there's people there and you, even the neighbors come through and you can talk to them about the neighborhood. But then when no one's there, I have like quiet for two hours and it's awesome. Oh, like, <laughs> I keep thinking about no screaming boys and... Yeah, I keep thinking about everything else I could be doing oh. in those two hours, and it just like makes me antsy. I'm like, I gotta get out of here and get my list done, you know. So, so it's one thing if it's like a productive. There's a variety of people coming in, and that's probably when you also meet maybe potential new clients mm-hmm. that you might have a rapport with someone. Oh, I'm just kind of looking. We're thinking about it. Well, do you have a realtor yet? No, not yet. Well, I'm in the market for new clients. <laughs> She's good. I love it. We were watching Dead to Me last night. Have you guys watched I love that show? That. Oh, I, I haven't watched this new season. Okay, yeah. so we're still on season one. I oh. just got my husband to rewatch it with me. And the episode we were watching was the one where she like shows up on this guy's door. And she's like, hey, I want to show you these great new houses. Mm-hmm. He's like, great, I'll take two for cash. And she's like, that is $8.2 million cash. You're sure? And he's like, yeah. And my husband's like, that's how it works, right? You just go knock on somebody's door and you're like, hey, look at these $4.1 million condos. And he's like, that's not big enough. She's like, well, you could tear the wall down and have two. He's like, great, I'll take them. (laughs) She's good too. She's great. I love her so much. I know, me too. And you know, like now she has um, MS mm-hmm. and so she's just completed the third season. And I've read a, a, a quote with her that she doesn't know if she'll ever do another show <gasps> again. That oh. She said, at least at this time, she cannot imagine getting up and being on set for 12 to 14 hours, mm-hmm. that it would just be way too much for her. So hopefully she gets, you know, some medicine, I mean, it, 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 intact, but yeah. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. yeah. She's had a great career though. Mm-hmm. Oh Yeah. Okay, so I think our final tally in this, you know, decision-making process. Melanie, you would live there, but only after it was renovated. Yes. Okay. Alana, you would not live there. I would not live there. I think I would live there if they knew who did it and that person was in prison. Okay. Yeah, but the unsolved mystery aspect to it creeps me out. Okay. I would stay there. Like, I would rent it, but I wouldn't buy it. Mm. I think it's a rough investment. You'd have to get a, a song on that. Mm-hmm. Oh, that, that's a good point from the investment perspective. Yeah. yeah. I mean, because look at it today that the family has not been able to sell mm-hmm. it. I, mm-hmm. I don't know how much they're actively trying to sell it at the moment, but she definitely has had it in the market before without success. Mm-hmm. But Elena, I think you're right. Like if somebody bulldozed it and rebuilt, that would be a different story. So mm-hmm. if you could get it for lot value, I say, yeah, buy it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think in some of the other stories that we're going to be telling in the future, it does seem that in some of the really notorious mm-hmm. situations, even when the house is a really nice house, that they are being bulldozed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think you're exactly right. Okay, so Alana, speaking mm-hmm. of future episodes, oh, yes. we're going to do something a little different next week. We have been honed in on John Bonet for three weeks, but we are going to switch gears and you're going to tell us. We're going to talk about the Manson family and the oh. Sharon Tate murders. Okay, I'm excited for yes. that. I don't know a lot about that. I'm excited to school you. Oh, perfect. <laughs> 
<laughs> School me. Yeah. <laughs> Are you hanging out with the kids again? Is that what yeah. they say or is that already I passe? I think, yeah, that's probably a 90s thing. I'm going to school you <laughs> and your mama. I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm excited to talk about it because it's one of my favorites. I, I know it's kind of creepy to talk about true crime that way, but I, that's always fascinated me, that story. And, and I think the cult aspect, too, just kind of fascinates me on who would start a cult, who would join a cult. They don't know they're in a cult, but it's interesting. And the house is beautiful um, and a lot of history. Yeah, It is really like the who's who of that era of um, film stars who had um, stayed there, been there, somehow associated mm-hmm. with the house. So and re- someone who should have been there that night that wasn't. Oh, yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Oh, you'll so. have to tell us all about that. Yeah. And then people who actually, and then people who lived in the house or used the house even after the murders mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that are in the celebrity um, scene as well. So yeah. definitely. Well, that's interesting. Great. That's great. Well, if you are tired of hearing me talk, turn in next week. We'll hear Alana's story of the Manson murders. Goodbye. Hey, y'all. Thanks for listening and being a part of our crime estate family. If you're curious about today's featured crime estate, you can find additional photos and details from today's episode online at crimeestate.com or on Facebook and Instagram by following at Podcast. Have a crime estate we should cover? Let us know. Shoot us an email at crimeestatepodcast at gmail.com. Until next week. 